2 Corinthians chapter 12, first six verses. If you're physically able, I'll invite you, if you can, uh, to stand as we read the word of God together this morning. This is what the word of God has to say to us. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which, may not, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul had seen in his ministry God move in amazing ways. He often saw many, hundreds, thousands coming to salvation. He also uh, experienced, often in connection to when great many people came to know the Lord, he also experienced tremendous, awful, difficult, bitter persecutions and sufferings for the gospel. It's no, no mystery that often the, the greater the movement of God, to bring people unto salvation also were times of greater hardship and suffering for him. When Paul and Barnabas preached in Iconium, Iconium, the Bible tells us that many Jews and Greeks believed the gospel and were being saved. However, this awakening, this great movement of salvation caused the unbelieving Jews to grow greatly hostile toward Paul and Barnabas and the gospel that they preached. So they worked to stir up the Gentiles and divide the city against them. And, and working together now, the Gentiles and Jews, these unbelieving Gentiles and Jews, uh, they attempted to harass Paul and Barnabas and to kill them by stoning When Paul and Barnabas heard that this was what they were planning to do, they escaped the city. And they fled to the area of Lyconia. In Lystra, a city in that area, things started out well. While Paul was preaching, he, he noticed a crippled man that was listening intently to his sermon. And the Bible just simply tells us that Paul recognized that he was a man of faith, that he had believed unto the gospel. And so Paul commanded the man words of healing. He said, get up and walk. And this crippled man who had been crippled all of his life stood up and started to walk. Now, can we just all agree that's a pretty great moment? You're preaching People are coming to salvation, and Paul's just healed a man who's been crippled his whole life. 
But what you would think would be a glorious moment turned out to be horrible. When the people saw that the crippled man had been healed, they began to worship Paul and Barnabas. They began to say that Barnabas was Zeus and that Paul was Hermes. And the New Testament, the the book of Acts in chapter 14 says that Paul and Barnabas began to rebuke the people and were really barely able to keep them from bringing sacrifices, not like gifts of thanksgiving, but sacrifices unto God's little G to Paul and Barnabas. And then things got even worse. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and possibly using the excited state that the people were in, thinking that Paul and Barnabas were gods and not them not allowing them to worship them, uh, these Jews convinced the people to turn on Paul and Barnabas. And they did. This time, they were not able to escape. In Acts chapter 14, it says that Paul was stoned. Now, if you're not familiar with what that means, in the, in the Old Testament, we see it often, but it's also in the, in, the, in the New Testament, the first century, it was a form of execution, a brutal form of execution, where the one who was to be killed was placed, uh, and then the, a crowd would gather and pick up stones and throw them at them until they were dead. It's a horrible way to die. And they stoned Paul. And when they believed that he was dead, They dragged his body through the streets until they took him outside of town and they left his body outside of town to rot. They left and disciples, probably friends of Paul and Barnabas, people who maybe had even witnessed what had just gone down from the sidelines, not able to stop it, but horrified by it, gather around the body of Paul. Now, the Bible gives almost no details about why they were there, what they were doing. My guess is they gathered around him to grieve and to gather his corpse to give it a proper burial. And then scripture records something that almost as if it's an afterthought. I mean, it gives it very little excitement at all. Acts chapter 14 Verse 19 reads this way. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, here it is, comma, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Paul, with Barnabas to Derbe. We don't know for sure. But what Paul is referencing in the passage that we read this morning may be what happened, what is recorded as happening in Acts chapter 14. Paul was stoned to death. Lifeless, dragged out of the city, left to die. Disciples gather around him probably to, to bury his body. And in the midst of that mournful, grieving moment, he stands up and the Bible just says, he just gets on about ministry. He goes about preaching. Now that's amazing in and of itself. And I think that may be what he's referencing now as he gives us a little bit more of the story of what was happening to him while he was being dragged out of the city. 
whether this is the event or not that Paul is recounting in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is absolutely amazing. Since chapter 10, he's been defending his ministry from the attacks of false teachers and demonstrating the foolishness of the false teachers bragging and arrogance and their false gospel. Now, there are many things about this passage that tempt us to be distracted from the important truth. This is why I think Paul says that he has kept this a secret for 14 years. He's not told anyone. And yet, it would be foolish of us, I think, indeed, to read past this passage and not give it our attention this morning and let it speak into our lives. Last week, from the closing verses of chapter 11, the Bible calls us to glory in our weaknesses and experience in our weaknesses the power of God. Now, we were going to return to that theme because verse 7 Paul returns directly to that theme. In fact, this episode of what he's telling us now will be connected to Paul's greatest weakness throughout his lifetime. But this morning, I want us to give attention to these six verses as Paul moves his attention to heaven. And my prayer for you and I is that you and I would move our attention to heaven this morning. Now, the way I'm organizing the sermon today is Mark's distinguishing dynamics and, and desires of a true disciple. In that, Paul is demonstrating not some special uniqueness about him, but just, I think, something that ought to be true of all of us. That, a true that the mark of a true disciple is the glory of God, that the, that the hope of, the true, of a true disciple is what is to come in the promises of God, that the desire of a true disciple is to be in the presence of God and behold the glory of God forever. You don't have to have a vision of heaven for that to be true of you. So with that being our division this morning, let's begin with the mark of a true disciple. Verses one and two tell us that, Paul says, if I've got to go on boasting, the Ben Smith version would be, if, I'm about to, if I've got to go on boasting, I'm about to give you something you can't compete with. But he says, if I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. But connect that with what he says in, in verse 6, the very last part of verse 6 where he says, um, but he refrained from, he's refrained for these 14 years from telling this so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. The mark of a true disciple, I think we see in this passage first, is that there is a desire to sacrifice for the blessing of the church. If indeed this event, the event that was the occasion for Paul's experience was, was what is recorded in Acts chapter 14, it's no wonder why Paul kept this experience a secret for so long. So in Acts chapter 14, the people who witnessed God doing something amazing did not give glory to God. So when they saw Paul heal a crippled man, they didn't say, praise be to God from whom all blessings flow. No, they said, let's get our sacrifices and now focus our pagan worship on these two men. They wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as little G gods. They attempted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. One of the common traits of those who are false teachers 
This is true of every generation from first century to our day. One of the common traits of those who are false teachers is to use the preaching of the gospel as means of personal advancement and enrichment over the faithful proclamation of God's truth. Now let's just be honest for a moment and say, convincing people that you are a God and receiving their worship sacrifices would undoubtedly be a very lucrative way to live. Are you with me on that? So in this moment, Acts chapter 14, if that's, this is what Paul is referencing in this passage, they're calling him a God. It could have been for an un, ungodly, wicked man who was using the gospel for personal advancement. It would have been hitting like the jackpot, the, winning the lottery. These people are willing to, to worship us as gods. We can demand of them anything we desire. And yet in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas preach against the worship of men and restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Paul also demonstrates restraint for the blessing of the church, I think, by keeping this experience that he recounts in this passage a secret for these many years. If his experience had been known, it would have attracted attention that likely would have focused more on Paul than on Jesus. Now, is this not true of our day as well? When someone claims to have a supernatural, a spiritual experience, they, they tend to write books and go on the speaking uh, uh, circuit and, and, and begin to promote themselves so that they can promote their books and, their, and their, their website and other things that promote their experience and themselves over the testimony of Jesus, the gospel and the glory of God. Many find their experiences fascinating and want to purchase opportunities to hear their story, but, but generally what is elevated is not Jesus or a deeper understanding of the gospel, but the speaker's celebrity and their bank account. If I or you or any of us in this room had an experience like Paul recounts in this passage, would you not want to tell it? And would we not want to hear it? Would we not be fascinated by this and be tempted to give our attention to your experience even at the expense of understanding the word of God? And yet Paul keeps this a secret for 14 years because I believe he's more concerned with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus than his personal celebrity. Like John declared, I must decrease, but he must increase. True disciples love the church of Christ more than themselves. True disciples sacrifice what might be personally advantageous for the blessing and the good of the church. A mark of a true disciple is to sacrifice for the blessing of the church and ultimately to labor for the glory of Christ. Though what Paul has recounted is true, he says in verse six that he's refrained from telling it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me and hears from me. Here he reveals what is of true importance to him and what is of true importance. The testimony of Paul is living for the gospel. The testimony of Paul is that living for the gospel is more important than the experiences he has had. The gospel he preaches is more important than the experiences that he has had. More simply put, all glory and honor are due to Jesus alone. Oh, dear friends, if God uses you in a mighty way, 
for the proclamation of the gospel, for the blessing of the church, and for bringing many to Jesus. Labor for the glory of Christ and not for the promotion of your name. Let your name be forgotten in the annals of history so that the name of Jesus may be celebrated. Those who preach the true gospel do so that Jesus may be glorified. Those who live for Christ do so that Jesus may be glorified. God may do great things through you, but these great things are for his glory and not your own. God may allow you to have amazing spiritual experiences. These are, for your, for, for, these are for his glory and not your own. True disciples labor singularly for the glory of Christ. The mark of a true disciple is to sacrifice for the blessing of the church and to labor for the glory of Christ. And yet the hope of a true disciple is the glory to come. So Paul was given this amazing, and I mean absolutely amazing, glimpse into heaven. And you have to ask the question, what was the purpose? Why would God give this glimpse into heaven if Paul understood it really wasn't for the blessing of the church? He had kept it secret for 14 years. So clearly it wasn't for others to know. It was for Paul to experience what was the purpose I think there's at least three things here that I think we can point to as the purpose of this. And the first is that it reminded Paul that present sufferings have purpose. That present sufferings have purpose. Nothing is wasted in the economy of God. And even as Paul suffered greatly for the kingdom of God and for the preaching of the gospel, those sufferings were not isolated. Those sufferings weren't worthless. Those sufferings had purpose purpose for the glory of God. The experience that Paul recounts is certainly amazing and not one that many will know this side of heaven. Now, I think it'd be important for us before we go any further to explain a few things in this passage that may be helpful for you because there are a few things in this passage that are either confusing or can be distracting from what is happening. Number one, in verse two, Paul speaks about knowing a man. So he's speaking about it uh, um, as sort of like a third person, but he's speaking of himself. So he's not, he's not recounting an, an account from someone else. He's recounting his, his own experience. But he does it this way in order to just to demonstrate that really and truly this is, this is not something that he boasts about personally. And then secondly, he talks about a third heaven. And some have built whole theologies over this one phrase, third heaven. Where is, what is third heaven? Well, this is a phrase that the New Testament used, but we also find it in the Old Testament as well to distinguish the, the dwelling place of God, heaven, as different from the heavens of like the sky. So heavens of heavens or the glory of glories or the most high heaven, all of those are the same idea. So the third heaven is the heaven where God lives, not just the sky or the space above our heads. Now, Paul had known many persecutions and hardships in his life. In fact, one of the, one of the, 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 the bragging points that he had used in the previous chapter was that, um, that his difficulties for the gospel had really been greater than anybody else. And so you may remember last week we talked about how he, he, he gives a whole list of some of the things that he had experienced. Imprisonments, 
countless beatings, often near death, five times receiving 40 lashes minus one. That was 40 lashes were considered a death sentence, and so they'd give you 39 just shy of killing you. Three times he'd been beaten with rods. He'd been stoned once, probably the, the Acts chapter 14 reference there. Shipwrecked three times, and night and a day spent adrift at sea, often in danger while on his missionary journeys. He had hard labor, sleepless nights, often without food and water, and often in the cold and the wet. And the question is asked, and I think rightly so, what would keep a man going through such difficulty and suffering? Suffering is hard. Suffering can be soul-breaking if it is without purpose or cause. Some of you are right there right now. If your life is bitter, if your situation, your situation is bad, there may be in the recesses of your mind and heart, maybe not even, you're not even willing to speak it out loud, but that temptation to quit, to give up, to let loose. That's the, that's the natural outgrowth of suffering and difficulty is to, is to find relief some other way. And yet the testimony of Paul's life is when he was stoned to death, he gets up and goes right back. What would possess a man to suffer so greatly and to continue so faithfully in such difficulty? You see, in grace, I think God gave him a peek to see why he preached and what he was preaching for. I think God gave him a, a brief moment to look and to hear and to see the glories of heaven to come so that Paul had a, a, fresh, uh, um, uh, a fresh understanding of why he preached the gospel, the reason he preached the gospel, the hope for which he preached the gospel. The hope of heaven and the presence of God is why we preach Jesus. Listen to me. This is simple Simple is not a bad word. It just simply means foundational. You don't understand this. You don't understand anything else. We preach Jesus because only through Jesus can wicked, vile sinners who deserve eternity under the full, unmitigated wrath of God in hell, sinners can believe in Jesus and through faith in Jesus be made right before God and welcomed into the presence of the glory of God forever and ever and ever. Brothers and sisters, that's worth preaching. That's worth dying for and suffering for and enduring persecutions for. That's why we preach the gospel of Jesus. Whatever suffering you know this side of heaven will be well worth it when the glories of God's presence are known. No matter how ugly the world responds or the, the, uh, or the violence they employ to shut down the gospel, true disciples continue to preach Jesus because the glories of what is to come are far greater than, than the pleasures or the treasures of this world. True disciples willingly endure the sufferings of this world because of the compelling purpose of proclaiming the glorious hope of the gospel. Present sufferings have purpose, and I love this one. Present difficulties are not permanent. Somebody say amen. Well, maybe you're not hurting bad enough, but if you are, that gets pretty sweet. Paul's vision of heaven, I think, was, an encu was encouraging because he was reminded that the present difficulties are not 
permanent. Sickness and disability, grief and suffering can bring about, can also bring about depression and despair. Among other worries, one of the most terrifying thoughts of despair when you are in deep suffering, when you are in unrelenting pain, is to worry if your present condition, whether it be a sickness or a disability or a persecution, if your present situation or condition is permanent. To worry that way is to be a hopeless worry. This will never end. I'll never get over it. I'll never get better. My grief will never be assuaged. My, my days will never be joy-filled again. Often when the weakness of infirmities of illness are great, it is hard to imagine. It is hard to imagine ever being well again, whole again, happy again, joy-filled again. When pain is overwhelming, it's hard to imagine a day when you don't hurt anymore. And friends, listen to me. If that's where you are, then listen to me very carefully. It is a hopeful word indeed to know that the present difficulties are not permanent. They will not last. They are coming to an end. Paul's vision of heaven encouraged him in the midst of suffering that it was only temporary and that the glory of heaven was and is his future. Brothers and sisters, are right now, are you grieving today? Remember then the promise of Jesus is to come and gather you to the Father where grief is no more. Brothers and sisters, are you hurting today? Then be reminded that the promise of Jesus is to come again and to gather you to the Father where there is no pain and there is no crying. Brothers and sisters, are you enduring persecution today? Oh, then be reminded that the promise of Jesus to come again and to gather you with the Father and to trample over all the enemies of Christ and establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Are you sick today? Remember the promise of Jesus to come again and to heal you, to give you a glorified body that will never know sickness again. Are you depressed today? Weighed down by melancholy? Oh, dear brother and sister, remember that Jesus is coming again to gather you to the Father where every day is more joyful than the day before. Are you disabled today? Brother and sister, rem remember that Jesus is coming again to make you whole, to give you a glorified body, unlike these bodies that are corruptible and mortal, bodies that never grow sick, never grow tired, and are never disabled. This world is filled with many hardships and difficulties, but be encouraged. This world is passing away. And behold, Jesus is coming and will make all things new. Present sufferings have purpose. Present sufferings are not permanent. And I think the view of heaven and the hope of a true disciple is to have faith in the promises of God. The writer of Hebrews taught us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What Paul saw in, of heaven was so wonderful that he says, 
that words could not, cannot express what I saw and what I heard. Now, one of the marks of a false prophet, a mark of a false disciple, a, a mark of a false teacher is to arrogantly proclaim things that Scripture, by God's sovereign choice, declines to say anything about. I'm going to press some of your buttons here, but hang with me here. In recent years, at least in our lifetime, surely this has happened in previous generations, books have been written by some people who claim to have died, gone to heaven, and then returned to life. And like the fascination that I think Paul was trying to avoid by keeping this experience of his secret, our world today is as fascinated as the first century would have been. We buy the books, we go to the, the speaking tours, we watch the movies. These people write books and go on speaking tours describing what they saw. Usually what they describe is more akin to a Hallmark movie than anything Scripture declares. And frankly, these authors stand in sharp, condemning contrast to the biblical witness. I would remind you that the, the people in Scripture, Lazarus, died, went to heaven. Jesus called him back to life from the grave. And yet in all of the New Testament, the only thing we have as a testimony about Lazarus after his resurrection is not a testimony of how he went on a speaking tour or began to be, uh, have seminars on what he saw and heard in heaven. No, all we have is that he became such a fiery evangelist for the gospel of Jesus that they wanted to kill him as much as they wanted to kill Jesus. John in his revelation he speaks allegorically, he speaks figuratively of streets of gold and, 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 and gates of pearls. But frankly, dear friends, when you read his revelation, it's focused on the throne and the lamb who sits on the throne, not how we're going to have a family reunion at dinner tables and houses that we're going to live in. And Paul, Paul in chapter 12 says, I saw heaven. And what I saw and I heard, you can't understand because it's too glorious. Friends, if people can describe what they saw, they did not go to the heaven where God dwells. Those things are closer to heresy than they are helpful to the church. And just as a pastor, I would say to you, you would do well and be wise to reject those things for what they are. Fanciful things that are not connected or supported by Scripture. Friends, the glory of heaven is so great that it cannot be described in the language of our tongue. Paul, Paul says it. You can't understand it. I wonder if he, if he elaborated and said, listen, I'm not even sure I fully understand the glory of God. You could not understand the glory of what it would be like if words could even be found. God gave Paul a glimpse of heaven and scripture encourages believers with the glory of heaven so that your faith in the promise of God would be encouraged, not so that we could describe it to others. Romans 10 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The intention of what Paul is communicating here is that we would have faith in the promises of God, that we would believe 
and be encouraged and have faith in the hope of heaven. Now, there's one other thing I want to draw your attention to out of this passage. It's rather short, but I think rather important, and that is the desire of a true disciple. This is where I want to get your attention right. I want to draw your attention away from worldly things and to heavenly things. The, the, the desire of a true disciple is to be in the presence of the living God. So Paul says some interesting things here. Look back in the passage with me. He says in verse 4, Well, verse three says, I know that this, this man was called up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which may not be, may not utter. On, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weakness. The desire of a true disciple is to be in the presence of God. There's a truth that brings great hope in this passage. Paul says twice in the passage that he does not know whether his experience was embodied or out of the body. He doesn't know if God physically took him in the body to heaven or if his spirit was just in heaven. The issue is, and maybe the question is, what happens to a believer when this body dies? Now friends, if the Lord tarries, every one of us will die. And it's a question we ask, we must ask, what happens to you, what happens to me, what happens to us when this body dies? The Bible says we live forever if we believe on Jesus. What does that mean? How do we live forever if these bodies die? If this experience was what was recounted in Acts 14, it very well may be that Paul died when he was stoned. The crowd thought he was dead. It seems that the other disciples that gathered around his body thought he was dead. And though first century people did not enjoy all the med modern medical abilities that we enjoy, they did have the ability to determine whether somebody was living or dead. You don't need a medical degree for that. And all of the people at that moment had determined Paul was dead. So it's doesn't, it's not a far stretch for me. And if Acts 14 is what Paul is referencing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it very well may be that Paul physically died in that moment. But notice as he recounts the experience in this chapter, he's not really concerned with, with the details of that. He doesn't even know, he says, whether I was in the body or not, whether I was dead or not, I don't know. He's not concerned about whether he died because he understands that we are more than just embodied beings. Follow with me here. You and I are embodied presently. And as a result, we experience the world through our bodies, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch. When Jesus returns, the redeemed will receive glorified bodies. We long for that day. And so when, when Jesus returns, the, the dead in Christ will rise. Those who are, uh, those who are, are living at the time will, will, will gather with the dead in Christ in the air and we will receive 
resurrected bodies like the body of Jesus when he raised, raised from the grave, bodies that no longer know the suffering of death or the curse of sin and will not die, will not suffer, will not grieve, will not hurt, all those things in our glorified bodies. So we are embodied now and at the second coming of Jesus, we will be embodied. However, you are more than just flesh and blood. For the redeemed, when your body dies, you don't sleep. You don't get put in some temporary holding pattern. You don't get stuck in some in-between world where you're not really dead and you're not really alive. No, as Paul talks about this experience, he understands that whether he was in the body or not doesn't really matter. He was alive with Christ. And earlier in this book, he had written, so we are always of good courage. This is in chapter five. We are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So his living, his existing, his being is not dependent upon his embodiment in the flesh. The desire of the disciples of Jesus is ultimately to be in the presence of God. For Paul, that meant giving every moment on earth in service to God, knowing that one day he would eventually be in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, it is the same for you and me today. Friends, if you know Jesus, you live for and with the Lord, whether in the body or not. Your future is secure, whether in the body or not. Live in service to the Lord, having as your greatest and your ultimate desire to be in the presence of the Lord, in the body or not. And I think connected to that, but also, we also can say that the hope and the desire of a true disciple is not only to be in the presence of God, but to behold the glory of God. To know God is to desire to behold and know his glory. To the Romans, Paul wrote these words of encouragement to this end. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Talking about heaven. For the creation waits with, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now I believe, friends, that this vision that, that Paul is accounting for in 2 Corinthians 12 took place before he wrote these words. Where he talks about longing and groaning and waiting eagerly for what is to come. What he saw only made him want more, the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen to me carefully. 
the great temptation of our age is to be satisfied with worldly things. Do not be satisfied. Long for, eagerly await, groan in anticipation for what is to come. Live in the present difficulties of this world, having as your faith's desire to be in the presence of God and forever behold the glory of God. It seems to me, just from my perspective, that generations past, when I say that, I mean like great grand, my great-grandparents and before, that generations past sang more often about heaven than we do in our day. Now, the reasons for that are probably great and complicated, but it may be that they were more confronted by the reality of death and more intimately knew the sufferings of this world. In our modern day, medicine, air condition, advanced technology has allowed us to and tempted us, I think, to seek comfort and peace in this world and lose sight of heaven. But my plea to you today is do not give in to that temptation. Your life is worth more than the next vacation. Your life is worth more than a new car. Your life is worth more than having an amazing experience of dining experience or entertaining experience. I'm thankful for all the comforts of this day, but we still live in a world that is under the curse of sin. Do not give in to this temptation. As good as the pleasures of this world are, they do not compare to the glory of God's presence. As comfortable as modernity has made us, there is no comparison to the peace of being in the presence of the living God. The hope of heaven is an encouragement to press on and keep the faith. The hope of heaven is the hope that keeps us going through the brokenness and trials and tribulations and difficulties of this world. When Martin Luther found himself the enemy of the Pope for faithfully preaching scripture, he didn't take comfort in the pleasantries of this world. He took comfort in the promises of God. Listen to his words that you're probably familiar with. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. And here is the great promissory declaration his kingdom is forever there is no hope in the kingdoms of this world there is eternal 
forever hope in the kingdom of God. Draw your vision up from the things that are so temporary and be encouraged by a heavenly vision of what is to come. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.